Welcome to Menu Stories. I'm your host, Rebecca Goberstein. Through the Menu Stories podcast, we get to meet the people behind the food and restaurants we love and hear their stories. Today's guest is chef proprietor Brenda Buenviaje of Brenda's French Soul Food, a restaurant with a cult following in the Tenderloin neighborhood of San Francisco. Chef Brenda was born and raised in New Orleans and ended up becoming classically trained in French cooking, receiving accolades as a chef from New York to San Francisco. She was also invited to cook at the James Beard House in New York, twice. We discuss how different the San Francisco kitchen scene is from that of other cities, what visual arts has to do with cooking, and what it feels like to have a food critic come into your restaurant, and how some of the local neighbors have reacted to Chef Brenda and her restaurants. You'll also get to hear about some of the new projects that Chef Brenda is thinking about launching. Fair warning, Chef Brenda shares some personal and honest experiences that she had working in kitchens with some rough atmospheres. Some of the words used may be offensive and not appropriate for children. With that, let's have a listen. This French soul food is um, uh, 25 plus years of me kind of defining my own cuisine. I worked with a friend uh, before I opened the restaurant who was just in love with my food. And he's like, you know, I don't know what it is, but your food is like, it's French based, but it's so soulful. It's like French soul food. And the guy was really chatty and I'm sure he doesn't remember ever saying that to me, but I thought, oh, that's that's really good. <laughs> you know? So when I uh, decided to open my restaurant, I decided that I wanted to do, I was kind of going for this like bistro week because I'd been doing a lot of French food, but I'm from New Orleans and I wanted to bring like some real Creole influences into it. And that phrase came back to me and I thought, oh, am I really going to name this restaurant something so weird? You know, like I thought it was weird. And then I also... <laughs> I was uncomfortable naming a restaurant after myself. It just seems so, I don't know, egomaniacal. But I thought, you know what, screw it. I'm just gonna do it. It's just gonna be this tiny mom and pop, you know, restaurant in the Tenderloin, no big deal. And- uh, So you thought. <laughs> so I thought, well, who cares, just do it. You know, as long as I pay my bills, I'll, I'll be fine. But what I found is that people really, um, they didn't want the French as much as they wanted the soul. And really what they wanted was they wanted all the Creole-influenced dishes. So what's really taken off are the beignets and just pretty much any of the New Orleans-style foods. And, but, uh, you know, I also opened the restaurant, coincidentally, just after Katrina mm-hmm. happened. So there were a lot of uh, ex-New Orleanians in the Bay Area, and they just showed up. And they said, mm, we don't want the Sam Tartar but we do want red beans and rice. So <laughs> I kind of let that, it just all kind of fell into place and customers showed up and said, yes, this is what we wanted. And so in a lot of, in some ways, uh, our customers kind of dictated the whole French soul food thing. Uh, and I mean, New Orleans style cuisine has a lot of French influence in it, mm-hmm. right? So, yes, um, through the Cajuns. Did you start out even more kind of classically French in addition to New Orleans style Creole Cajun type of food? Oh yeah, I uh, I actually I probably learned more French technique um, on the job than I 
one of the last jobs I had before I opened my own place was at Cafe Cod. Mm-hmm. You know, and that was cooking like really sh- straightforward French, French food. Mm-hmm. I realized that I was already kind of cooking that way anyway, mm-hmm. just with a lot more spice. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, a lot of times I would make a dish and they would complain that my food was too spicy. That's oh, at, just the, at Cafe Cod? At the French place, yeah. So what was it like growing up in New Orleans? So, I mean, it's obviously influenced you quite a bit. And oh, yeah. you can't shake the spice from your food. I cannot. <laughs> it, um, well, you know, definitely defines who I am. Not just being from New Orleans, but also being one of the very few Filipina families in my neighborhood, at least. So, you know, I had, I had two strong influences. just my ethnicity and then where I was growing up. I'm three quarters Filipino, one quarter Creole. And the Creole side is, it's a pretty good mishmash. I have um, Sicilian. My Sicilian relatives go back to the mid 1700s. And I have uh, French, Cajun French, that goes all the way back to Nova Scotia, which is pretty cool. I, I was just looking at my family tree. And I, you know, all those, all those foods just really, they were in my house. They define who I am. They define the way I cook now. Who prepared a lot of the meals when you were a kid? Um, well, my mom cooked most of the day-to-day meals, but she was the mother of six. And wow. I, uh, I didn't really like her food. I thought she was a lazy cook. Oh, no. A judgmental kid. So I thought forever, I thought growing up, growing up, I thought I didn't like gumbo until I ate gumbo at someone else's house. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> this is really good. <laughs> this is what it's supposed to taste like. Why do you think you didn't like your mom's gumbo? Because she was kind of a lazy cook. She'd burn her roux <laughs> and she'd throw the okra in last minute. So it was still slimy. And, you know, she kind of, she used it as kind of a dumping ground right. for like old seafood and stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> But um, my stepdad, who's also Filipino, he would do the special occasion Filipino food like a couple times when I was a kid. We'd roast the whole hog or he'd like cut down a million banana leaves and steam um, sweet rice and banana leaves or they'd make a version of bao, Mm -hmm. Filipino bao. My grandma, who was um, half Sicilian and half, I think, English, made the best spaghetti and meatballs ever. And like, I think because she's been gone for so long, it's just mythic in my mind. Right. But it's like, that's also one of my soul foods. Like, it, one of those things that's like a special, special treat. Yep. Yeah. How did New Orleans influence the way you cook then? If, if it was less a little bit so than maybe your mom's gumbo recipe <laughs> um, <laughs> or technique? <laughs> well, you know, I think not just not just my cooking but just who i am like just growing up in new orleans it just instills this like joie de vivre you know just like big lust for everything i think there's just this kind of freedom down there to like do whatever you want and Mm -hmm. it can be a little dangerous but (laughs) i think just growing up with that that sort of like you know laissez-faire i don't give a care i'm just gonna go for it attitude i don't know if it's just me or if it's just something that's been instilled in me. I mean, my wife, <laughs> my wife and I were having breakfast this morning, and she was joking about how <laughs> the kids don't like me to take bites of their food because my bites are too big. <laughs> and she's like, you know, actually, that just kind of represents your whole personality. You know, you just take too much of a big bite out of everything. <laughs> and I think, oh, maybe it's my New Orleans. Who knows? But you know. I think it, in some ways, just growing up in such a 
open um, atmospheres really made me kind of fearless about some things. Have you ever felt like you did take too big of a bite of something? Um, as in, like, personal failure? Yeah, I mean, it seems like maybe it feels like you're taking too big of a bite, but it seems like, I mean, based on where you've come and what you're doing now, it seems like you were able to handle it. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's interesting. I actually, um, you know, I'm doing this pop-up this Saturday, and I was reading some details about the event, and the first thing they mentioned is be prepared to do public speaking. And, and my stomach just turned. Like, I just, like the idea of, like, speaking to a group of people, you know, even if they were there just to eat my food is still, like, it's terrifying. I've always suffered from... It started as a young adult. I suffer from panic disorder. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of things that, you know, I I don't do. Mm -hmm. Or I've avoided that I, you know, because I just can't, you know, I just can't manage it. But slowly, you know, I try to do things to push myself out there. You would, you know, you wouldn't think, oh, this woman who opened three restaurants (laughs) in San Francisco suffers from panic disorder. But it's... It's specific, and it's, you know, it just kind of maybe in some ways kind of uh, reins me in so I, I don't take too, too big of a bite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think a lot of people can identify with that. So what about restaurants is um, kind of within the bounds of this panic that you might feel sometimes? I'm assuming that you don't really have that much panic or anxiety when it comes to your business and, and restaurants and no, being in the restaurant industry it's so, so weird it? like and people who know me they're like you're crazy like <laughs> you just do these things i'm like yeah well that that doesn't scare me i um you know when i first opened the original brenda's the only thing i was afraid of was basically losing all of my assets and all the money that accumulated in my entire life right and Which is reasonable. Um, I mean, that's it's reasonable, but <laughs> even that, it's like, okay, so I'll, I'll be even poorer than I was. <laughs> like, I'm pretty comfortable with being poor. Right. But, oh, I know it scares me. <laughs> um, I'm not food to, like, critics. <laughs> oh, no. I, yeah. So why, why does that, why does that scare you? Public scrutiny? Like, who's not afraid of public scrutiny? <laughs> You know, it's true. it's one thing That's to have fair. like a nice article written you, written by you by a food blogger. It's another thing to have a public entity come into your space and scrutinize you, and then blast it all over the world. This sucked. Mm-hmm. You know, has that happened to you? Um, I have never gotten a scathing review, but I have had early on in my career, decades ago, I had a review that. I thought was really really unfair mm-hmm. and it and it really it it wrecked me it wrecked me for a long time i imagine that food critics do actually end up influencing the business of a restaurant but it seems like more and more uh, with the rise of social media mm-hmm. especially instagram and you yeah. know sort of the unlikely social media applications that allow the public to speak the truth do you think that's helped oh absolutely when i opened the first place i um i didn't i, I just assumed i would never be reviewed by any major entity because it's a you know this is tiny little greasy not really greasy spoon but an ex-greasy spoon (laughs) and um it took off because of yelp like 
Our, um, our restaurant is one of the top 10 most Yelped restaurants in the country. No way. It's just like this like crazy Yelp phenomenon. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. And, you know, like once we were really established and we had weights on the weekends and at lunch every day, I was kind of like, okay, if we were to get reviewed right now, it wouldn't kill me. Right. (laughs) But at that point, like no one bothered because it, you know, there was, there was no news to tell. Right. It wasn't like the brand new spot. No. But when I opened the second restaurant, Brenda's Meat and Three, over on Divisadero, I did go through a whole string of, like, real reviews. That was rough. That was a rough three months. (laughs) Because I just, you know, I just felt like I was walking around naked every day. Waiting, waiting. You know, the more I talk to chefs and people who actually produce the food, the more it becomes apparent to me that it's very much an art, especially because your background is an art. I'd love to hear what you think the parallels are between visual arts and producing food. And Oh, sure. No, it's funny. I was, ha- I, oh, I was having a conversation with my son, who's actually going to School of the Arts for high school. He starts next year, and, you know, we were talking about applicability and blah, 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 and... I was like, you know, I got a degree in painting and drawing. And I, I, I think my degree, the four years that I spent painting and drawing and critiquing and being critiqued and just, just teaching myself to think out of the box all the time has served me more than going to culinary school. And I, think I watched it sink into his little head. And he was like, <laughs> she's right, you know? Damn it. <laughs> But I, I, I still very much stand behind that. It's one thing I noticed there's a parallel. I was talking to someone the other day who said he had a brother who was a chef, but he also painted. And I'm like, wow, I'm a chef and I paint too. Like this, we're, all, we're tapping into some like specific part in our brain. Mm-hmm. Also, I've also noticed the correlation between pastry chefs and photographers. Mm-hmm. It's something about, you know, having to measure everything and being precise. That's really interesting, yeah. actually. I Personally, I love pastry, um, like baking and mm-hmm. making pastries. I like cooking, but I, I, that's where I really feel like I have a lot of fun. And I also do photography. So I think Something that's a pretty interesting connection. It's <laughs> <laughs> a really funny, uh, yeah, I wonder if there is something to that. Um, yeah. I think maybe there's, you know, with paint, it's a little harder to control and with food too there's sort of a fluidity to it where and that's what I love about it that's why baking drives me crazy (laughs) I'm like what I have to measure this and put it in at the right moment like screw that you know (laughs) so what what do you think you mentioned you were telling your son that the art training the visual art training was the best training that you could have had for being a chef Mm -hmm. what is it about that that you think was the right kind of training well, one, um, I mean, obviously the visual. Mm-hmm. Cooking is very visual, not just the plating part, but, you know, watching an ingredient turn a certain color and being in tune to that and being aware of it. I think also, for me, I went from painting to cooking because I, I love the gratification of showing people what I did. And I knew, like, if, if that was my high... I was going to get more of that high serving people food than trying to convince them to look at my paintings. Mm-hmm. 
because you got to eat. <laughs> and, and I love food. <laughs> the also, right. the, the, the critical aspect of it is really helpful because critiquing and being critiqued and, and just being mature about it and owning it and staying open to it and really learning from it rather than being, being defensive, mm-hmm. that's a process, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, it's uh, I think it's really great training for not just a cook, but I mean, especially for me as a chef and restaurateur, mm-hmm. you know, having my s- creations scrutinized on a constant basis, it kind of, it helps. It does. Yeah. I mean, I miss that a lot from my writing classes from college and yeah it's 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 harder it's kind of like once you're not in that community anymore it's harder to get anybody <laughs> to do that and give you an actual critique versus like i loved it oh that's yeah not helpful i drive my wife crazy all the time i <laughs> i worked on my fried chicken recipe for about six months and it got to the point where she's like if you say the word fried chicken one more time <laughs> i'm gonna kill you <laughs> <laughs> but it's like it's really awesome fried chicken it took me a while but i nailed it but <laughs> She's like at the mercy of my, you know, my process. So is she your main critiquer? Um, yeah, I mean, not voluntarily, but right. Besides the fact that she's obviously very, you know, close to you, um, what do you think is different for you getting a critique from maybe a, a peer or your wife than like from a food critic? Well, you know, the the thing with food critics, I might get in trouble here, but I don't care. <laughs> You know, I feel like some t- a lot of times things are sensationalized just to sell, you know, sell papers. And, you know, it's one thing to say um, the ribs were dry as opposed to the ribs uh, weren't worth bringing home to my dog. Right. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's mean. Right. It's not necessary. Why do you got to be like that? Yeah. You know? And there are food critics, particularly one here in the city. Um, who, you know, he plays that way. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, you know, they're perfectly lovely, wonderful food critics. For instance, Ruth Reichel is my favorite. She's not writing any more criticism, but, you know, she was able to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just, <laughs> you know, I have a problem no, with think, it. <laughs> I think that's a completely fair point. I think that's why things like Yelp and Foursquare and everything else took off because I think first of all it's not accessible to a lot of people no it's not it's one person's opinion and it's one person who like eats out way too much and is burnt out and is tired of writing about it and (laughs) just trying to sell papers (laughs) and you know but unfortunately you know they have a lot of power yeah I mean it used to be what's so great about it is you know the it used to be that the Chronicle did have the power to shut down a restaurant and or get a chef fired mm-hmm. um, and they don't anymore mm-hmm. you know we have too many millions of people out there giving their opinions as well mm-hmm. now if it's general consensus you're screwed right <laughs> but then I guess you had it coming right yeah, you, right. you probably saw that you shouldn't coming. have opened the restaurant <laughs> yeah um so how did you make the transition into food from, from art? Because you, if I have this right, you graduated with a degree in fine arts, a BFA in painting and drawing from Louisiana State University. Did you work as an artist or did you did you do art after college? Or I, how did you I did briefly. I mean, I, I needed to make money. I didn't have any money. What I was doing was, um, it's kind of crazy. I forget that I did this, but I was designing and hand painting needlework canvases. Oh wow! So if you ever seen needlework grid, it's just cotton fibers, I think. And I would like I did them when I was a little kid. Create a design or whatever, 
and I would paint the design onto the grids. But because it's needlework and I was basically creating a pattern for whoever was going to make that needlework, I had to paint each cross section the right color. Oh, so basically, yeah. it was um, pointillism. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I did, you know, I would do custom work. Like people would give me pictures of their dead dogs or whatever. And <laughs> they wanted to have it made into a pillow. So I'd paint fluffy on a canvas. <laughs> be like a million different shades of gray. I can't believe I did that. And then after a while, I created my own line of designs. Mm -hmm. Of needlework designs? Of needlework designs. They were all, they were food. No way. It was like dancing crawfish. And, you know, I'd sell them in like, like, uh, touristy boutiques like in the French Quarter and stuff mm -hmm. and I did that for a while um, it was really tedious I didn't did not make much money mm -hmm. um, I s worked in an art supply store for a couple of years and the couple there were really lovely and they told me pretty much one day they said you know what you think you talk in about food and you cook all the time like maybe you should consider, you know, like really doing that. And mm -hmm. it was just something that had never occurred to me ever. Like, mm -hmm. What? I cook for a living? That's insane. And I'm, here I am living in New Orleans. It just, it just was unheard of. You know, there were, there were no culinary schools. I mean, maybe there was like Le Cordon Bleu. But, you know, l growing up in the South, like I didn't know what the CIA was. Right. I, it just right, right, hadn't right. occurred to me. So. Right. I thought, okay, I'll try. Yeah. So I, you know, went for it. I put a resume together. I went to a couple of restaurants. Every time I walked in, they assumed I was there to wait tables. Obviously, because yeah. you're because I was a woman. Yeah. And you know, as an Asian woman, I, I think they just didn't know what to think of me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think I went one of the places. Oh, I had a friend who worked at Commander's Palace. And granted, this is like over 20 years ago who basically tried, did everything he could to talk me out of doing it. It's going to be terrible. You're going to hurt yourself. It's, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think he just didn't realize who he was talking <laughs> to, you know? <laughs> and, I mean, there is sort of a, there is a very, like, from what I've heard, a pretty aggressive sort of boys type of culture in the kitchen sometimes. Was there any truth to that? Oh, my God. Yeah, back then, definitely, the first let me think five six years of me cooking just like moving up through the ranks um, luckily my very first job was at a restaurant that had a female chef and she was just a little bit older than me and she was very girl power which was cool <laughs> I didn't realize how cool it was at the right. time but then I moved on you know worked in some of the bigger kitchens and it was all dudes there would be women in the pastry department, maybe some women in prep, but it wasn't just that. There were no Asians. Mm -hmm. So I don't know which aspect of it was worse, you know, the misogyny or the racism. Mm -hmm. It was it was hardcore. Do you have any stories you can share? Oh, just the names. Yeah. You know, the name calling. I had this one, and she was a woman. I had this African-American woman who for some reason could just couldn't bear to see me do well. She would call me like, Chink, you little Chinese bitch. Like, oh my God. Like, and she would follow me through the kitchen and say these things to me while I was trying to like set up my station. Wow. Because for actually for no reason. I don't, I never, I never did anything to this woman. She just was just filled with so much 
self-hate and hate for me. I had, um, I had, uh, I had this one guy who um, had just gotten out of the service. He loved telling these foul stories about Filipino prostitutes oh when in my presence. Yeah. And I was his sous chef at that time. And he would do things like when the head chef would leave, he'd sit down with the newspaper in front of me, like in the middle of service, just to like piss me off. Just a dick. Right. <laughs> I mean, stuff like that. I had, you know, I had a guy push me. I had a guy slam my door in the in the uh, cooler door. Just stupid shit. What? Um, how do, how would you react, or could you? Well, luckily, the the restaurant where most of that stuff happened, like if it was like particularly bad, mm-hmm. one of the owners was a woman, and I would bring it to her and say, you know, mm-hmm. this Tony guys. It's not cool. Mm-hmm. And she would she would fire him. <laughs> but I wasn't, you know, I didn't want to be that rat. But, right. like, if it, it got into the point of, you know, physicality, yeah, I'm like, I'm not going to quit this job for this jackass. Right. And, obviously, you probably were not the only one who had ever suffered from whatever they were doing to you. Right. I mean, the racism stuff, I... It was pointless for me to bring it to anyone's attention because everyone was doing it to everyone else. Right. It's just, just a really racist place, especially back then. Yeah, down in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot of times in those kind of cultures, everyone just sort of assumes, like, well, if everybody's getting it, then it's not so bad. But clearly, <laughs> yeah, it's probably just detrimental to everybody. So why, why do yeah, that? Yeah, it was just... I mean, it was... a big intense kitchen people were stressed out a lot of kids were like doing coke just to like keep up and just made them really aggressive and cuckoo right and the drinking (laughs) i mean a lot of it was really fun but some of it i look back and i'm like damn that was crazy (laughs) you know i mean the restaurant culture out here seems like there's oh no as soon as i moved here i moved here in 97 Mm -hmm. i never dealt with any of that stuff that's awesome to hear. Living out here. I like, they're like, oh, it's an Asian girl and she knows how to cook. Here, you, you be the chef. Come in, come in. Like, <laughs> completely different reception, you know, from this, like, practically from, like, the first few weeks that I got here. Um, that must have been to- a total shock. I, I, you know, I was so young. I was so naive. I was so, like, just in over my head. I remember, like, the first few months after being here a photographer came in to take my picture Mm -hmm. and in my like twisted little brain i had decided that everyone in san francisco was famous (laughs) of course he took my picture because i'm a chef at this restaurant because everyone here is famous you know i just saw robin williams walking up the street (laughs) it was just a way for me to i think manage what was going on Mm -hmm. like not acknowledging that it was special yeah, my, like, weird backwards way. Right. <laughs> so what brought you from New Orleans in 97 to San Francisco? Um, no, I was uh, the chef de cuisine at this very popular uh, fusion restaurant. And this was back when fusion was cool. In New Orleans? In New Orleans. And I had gone to the James Beard house with my chef to cook a dinner. And while we were there in New York, he goes, you know, I'm working on a restaurant in San Francisco. I'm like, yeah, I know. And he goes, well, do you want to come? I'm like, 
sure. And like three weeks later, I just like left New Orleans. <laughs> like right there on the spot in the cab, I remember. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to do that. And I got home, packed up, sold off all my stuff, and got a U-Haul. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, well, that's what you do when you're 28. You yeah, know? that's true. Yeah. No strings. and It was a free ride. And, like, <laughs> I had something to do that was exciting. Yeah. yeah. Had you ever been to San Francisco before? I had. And I was lucky because I had a lot of friends from college who were already living here mm-hmm. and had, uh, had been for years saying, you really should move here. You really should move here. And I was like, I'm, I'm busy. Right. So it was just, you know, it was kismet. It was meant to be. Yep. Yeah. It's also interesting, restaurants and kind of the restaurant industry didn't really cross your mind when you were living in New Orleans. As somebody who's been to New Orleans only as a tourist, to me that's such a surprise to hear because I always have thought of New Orleans as such a destination place for cooking and restaurants and the food. So was it, was it different when you were growing up? Or is it oh maybe yeah. just the locals? It was, it, was, it was very different growing up. And I think the reason why just the idea of it, you know, was something I hadn't had access to is just my own upbringing. You know, my Filipino family, like cooking is just not something Mm -hmm. that our family did professionally. You Mm -hmm. know, my parents assumed I would be an engineer Mm -hmm. or, you know, my sisters were nurses or I would work for the postal service. (laughs) You know, you know, it was (laughs) like stereotypical (laughs) Filipino jobs. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm not saying there aren't Filipino chefs, but like as Filipino Americans living in the South, it just had never occurred to anyone that that I might be a chef, right? You know, or cook professionally. How did your family react to it when you told them this is what you wanted to do? <laughs> I think like halfway through art school, they were like, "Okay, she is out the box. <laughs> She's gonna do what she wants to do." So when I mentioned to them that I was cooking. They were like, of course you are, (laughs) you know, and then it was kind of like, oh, yeah, we'll see how this goes more than anything. And then when (laughs) I actually like made it to like sous chef, one of the nicer restaurants and invited them to a party and they went into the kitchen and they saw the, the amount of respect that I commanded. They were like oh, she's not kidding. She's really doing this. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been kind of cool to show them. It was very cool because I remember that one event, they walked in and everyone said, hello, mom, to my mom. (laughs) She was like, wow, that's cool. Yeah, that's so nice. (laughs) Yeah. So you opened Brenda's in 2007, Mm -hmm. right? What was the actual impetus for for opening Brenda's Um, Food? You know what? I had known for at least a decade prior. Now, I feel like as soon as I started cooking, I knew that I, I was going to, that I really wanted to own my own restaurant. Mm-hmm. I would have very vivid fantasies of it all the time, especially if I was working for a jackass. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't something that I was afraid of for some reason. I worked for other owners for a long time, and some were great and some were not great. Some were super exploitative and some were kind. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, every time, every job, I was like, man, you know what? I can do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And I remember the last job I had, I was working for um, Delessio Market and Bakery. And they're great people, great group of people. But um, I was opening their second location for them. Mm-hmm. And it might have been like, I don't know, the 10th restaurant that I had opened for someone else. And mm-hmm. it's no matter how well organized you are, it's, r- it's always really stressful. Mm-hmm. And I remember as I was working on that opening, I was like, th- I told myself, this is the last opening. 
I'm ever doing for someone else. And as soon as I got it on its feet, I started, I wrote my business plan. And I, it, every day I went to work and something else had pissed me off because I was just kind of burnt out on it. I'd go home and I'd work that much harder on my business plan. Yeah, I certainly identify with that. That's why yeah. I started my first startup was I was like, I hate this job. <laughs> I'm going to get my own thing going. Um, <laughs> and why did you, when you decided to open Brenda's French Soul Food, why did you decide to do it in the Tenderloin? Um, it was the only place I could find a location in that I could afford basically I found an ad for a Korean American greasy spoon that was for sale for 85 grand which is like nothing these days Mm -hmm. and oh that guy had a snake around his neck oh my gosh really (laughs) I'm so glad I didn't see that the street is too much (laughs) um but I own a condo like four blocks away uh-huh. because it's the only place I could afford to buy a condo. <laughs> right. But I knew I needed collateral to open a business and the building's actually quite nice. But um, mm-hmm. so I'm like, I was not, I'm not afraid of the tenderloin. It, I really, you know, had been a part of this community for a while and I was comfortable with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you kind of get used to it after a while. It's well, weird, huh? You know what? The crack dealers, they like don't sell crack if you, in front of you if you have kids. They even have like little crack um codes no way yeah it's actually pretty cool <laughs> in this weird way right it's like an understanding yeah kind of a respect thing like not yeah. in front of the kids yeah, yeah. that's kind of funny <laughs> i also feel like they like people who are actually like high um they seem to only interact for the most part with other people who are high. <laughs> that's, that's kind of like my observation is yeah like yeah they can tell you're not on their wavelength they're like oh. just keep moving yeah. on <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> kind of weird <laughs> I mean, it seems also kind of fitting because obviously you think of soul food and you think of, you know, Southern food. And even though there's a lot of Creole influence in it, it's also very much like African-American historic food. Mm -hmm. And in San Francisco, it seems like the Tenderloin and the Western Edition and Bayview are kind of like the three last remaining neighborhoods where African-Americans even reside. So it almost seems like fitting in that sense. Uh, a happy coincidence, for yeah. sure. Yeah. What's your take on that? My experience with it? Well, yeah, what you're saying, like, demographically speaking, is true. And, you know, I, I own the second restaurant I own in is in the Western Edition. Yep. Yeah, I, I do serve that community. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, for the most part, a happy marriage. I, uh, <laughs> I, have, uh, I have been accused of being a Chinese lady doing black people food. Mm-hmm. I mean, the word, the word soul, as in soul food, is like very politically charged. Mm-hmm. I was sort of aware of that when I opened the restaurant, but I became more aware of it when people would call me on the phone and accuse me of appropriating their cuisine. Mm-hmm. And I really, you know, and it's tricky because especially like when African-Americans meet me in the restaurant, you could see they're a little disappointed. Like, <laughs> God damn it. Goddamn Asians have taken everything. <laughs> I'm like, no, I grew up in New Orleans. I'm one quarter Creole. You're like, but you don't, you know, all you yeah. see is my big face. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, just eat my food. It's going to be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever had people sort of um, admit that that's what they sort of thought and then they tasted your food and that changed their mind? Oh, yeah. To my face. Yeah. In front of their friends, they're like, uh, yeah, I had this one woman say, well, I was surprised first time I saw you. And after I ate here, I, I brought all my friends back. And she's like, and I wanted them to meet you. And they all kind of look at me like, yep, she's Asian. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> 
the report is correct. <laughs> she does, in fact, appear to be Asian. That's so funny. Oh, my gosh. Is there anything on the from your kind of Asian heritage and your Filipino heritage that has made it onto the menu? I wish I could, but it's just so it's too much of a stretch, which is why I'm doing this pop-up this weekend, because it's a venue for me to, you know, cook other foods that mm-hmm. I enjoy and grew up with to that end what's next for you what inspires you going forward and what's the next bite that you can oh i have too many ideas driving my wife crazy i i promised her i wouldn't open any restaurants this year because we're having a baby oh congratulations thank you (laughs) in october but um a couple things i'm working on is uh well i have a po'boy shop concept that i've been wanting to do for a while and uh, the concept is just, it's solid. I have it all worked out. It's just, just a matter of like finding the time and the space to make it happen. Mm-hmm. I would like to do a truck, and I thought I would do like a, a beignet truck. Man, that and would take off. It would be so crazy, right? Oh my God. And not Please just do, do and do beignets, <laughs> like do like a different array of beignets wherever we go each day that you can only get from the truck. Oh my gosh. So I have this whole beignet menu in my head and like, oh man, I got to do that. And what's great about it too is I could do sweet and savory. Yes. I (laughs) I remember ordering the beignets when I came to Brenda's um, pretty soon after I moved here in like 2008 or 2009 and there was a huge line out the door and one of my friends who's like a hardcore local San Franciscan, like she, no one's ever allowed to give restaurant recommendations (laughs) except for her (laughs) and she took us to Brenda's French soul food and we waited forever and everyone was angry because we're starving (laughs) and and the first thing we ordered was the beignets and it was not only the this like godsend to the table because everyone's so angry and hungry (laughs) but there were like we didn't expect how many different kinds of beignets and there was Mm -hmm. the savory kind of like cajun spice the crawfish yeah crawfish it was so good (laughs) it was awesome and we'd all been to new orleans before too so we've we've had the traditional type Mm -hmm. of beignets but man are those good Please do the food truck. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awesome. You have to talk to my wife yeah, first. Okay. After, yeah, okay. After the <laughs> maybe like 2016. Yeah. 2016 yeah. food truck campaign. Um, looking back at everything that you've managed to accomplish in a relatively short period of time. I mean, it's been, came in 97. What's the most rewarding thing about where you've come so far? Um, the most rewarding thing is having my children be proud of me. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Yeah. How do they express that? My son, oh, <laughs> my, I was giving my son and one of his friends a ride home from God knows what practice <laughs> or whatever. Uh-huh. And they were talking about the beignets and they were talking about like who loved the beignets and da, 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 and just the restaurant in general. And the, my son's friend looks at me and goes, you know you're famous, right? <laughs> <laughs> and my son was just beaming. He was like, and it was like, oh, you know, that's awesome. Yeah. You know? That's very cool. Well, thank you for sharing. Yeah. I won't make you <laughs> start crying. Oh, um, my God. <laughs> The groups of loyal patrons that endure the long waits to get into Brenda's French Soul Food and her other restaurants every single day speak for themselves. Chef Brenda's newest location, Brenda's Meat and Three, 
opened in late 2014 in the Western edition, and serves up another Southern culinary tradition, meals with one meat and your choice of any three sides. You can find links to all three of Chef Brenda's restaurants on frenchsoulfood.com and on menustories.com. On the next episode of Menu Stories, we meet a ball of energy who goes by the name of Lisa Fetterman, the young CEO of a company that's making waves in the world of food devices and food tech, Namiku. Namiku makes it easy to bring the coveted fine dining technique of sous vide to any kitchen. It's used by adventurous home cooks, fine dining kitchens like the legendary restaurant at Meadowood, and even by creative, shall we say, cannabis chefs who prepare things like infused glazes with the help of Namiku. Subscribe to Menu Stories on menustories.com so you can get the next episode delivered to your inbox. Be sure to find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and let us know what you're thinking of the show so far. Until next time, happy eating.